This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. And then in a week from today, we're all going to be paying attention, like it or not, to the U.S. election. It'll probably draw more eyeballs than the Saskatchewan party winning in Saskatchewan on our own soil in Canada yesterday. It will be something that people turn to to watch like maybe they watch circus performers. It will be something that people turn to and say, okay, if this goes one way, what happens? How does it affect us? Do I need to stock up on toilet paper? As Barack Obama said just about a half hour ago, there has not been an election like this in our lifetimes. And that sounds like a pretty accurate statement, don't you think? Joining us right now to talk about the upcoming U.S. election is Professor Matt Farrell, Professor of Political Science at Fanshawe College. Professor Farrell, we're, we're a week away. Are you excited? Are you feeling trepidation? Where does your mood sit right now? Well, it's always a big event, that's for sure. But um, you're quite right that it's almost like a car accident. You don't want to see what's going on, but you feel compelled to look. And um, well, as part of the job, I, I will be looking. I have to. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, th- there's really just, I would say, a lot of questions, questions about you know, how the um, how the election will happen. Um, we've seen some some long lines and delays, how people are going to deal with the health concerns, how um, how the votes will be cast. And then after the casting of the votes, how they're going to be counted. I mean, people have a lot of questions about this election. Definitely a lot of possible outcomes. And we're seeing that mail-in ballots need to be mailed a week out. Well, let's face it, we're not going to get our holiday gifts in when we're supposed to get them into the mail, let alone ballots being sent out at the right time. So we always like nice, tidy elections. People can grumble if they have to wait until midnight or 1 Mm a.m. Do we bother waiting up on this one, or do you get the sense that this is not going to be solved late Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning of next week? It's really going to depend on who is winning where, but there's a very good chance that it could be well into the wee hours before we've got a pretty good idea of, of who's winning. Now, with, with a couple caveats, if, um, if somebody like uh, Joe Biden is winning in Florida, which is pretty good about counting votes, they count their early votes, they tend to post them first, and then they start counting the, um, uh, the election day ballots and reporting them. So the early early ballots will get posted first in a state like Florida. And so if that was a state that was going to go uh, to Biden, then that might, you know, put, you know, it, it would set into motion a chain of events that could lead to an early result on election night. If Florida goes um, for the incumbent, President Trump, then there are, you know, a few different paths available that might indicate that it could be a, a longer night possibly one that's uh, slipping into, you know, the next week. And as, as you alluded to, a lot of that deals with absentee ballots and mail-in ballots and um, the combination of, of early voting and then the, the votes by mail and when states are allowed to start counting those. So you've got a state like Pennsylvania that everybody has their eyes on. Wisconsin is another one, but Pennsylvania isn't going to start counting ballots until Election Day. So they might be a little bit slower reporting theirs, and they've got um, – you know, upwards of three, you know, upwards of two million, almost three million requests for for absentee ballots. So they could get a lot of those coming in the mail, uh, which will take some time to count. So in a state like Pennsylvania, we might not get a result quickly. 
a state like Florida, a state like Arizona, who, which are also two key swing states, they could give us results pretty early. And so depending on which way they go, that could indicate that, uh, that the end would be in sight, you know, maybe around midnight or 1 a.m. We're talking with Professor Matt Farrell, Professor of Political Science at Fanshawe College, about next week's U.S. election. And you've mentioned some of those big swing states, Pennsylvania being one of them, Ohio, Michigan, looking at those. The Electoral College is always a funny kind of thing. Everybody wants to change it unless they're the party it's favoring, and that's probably why it doesn't get changed. How much of an impact could the fact that some southern states have more votes in the Electoral College make in in this election? Is that a a major storyline to watch? I I think the the big storyline that that touches on that is, is the composition of the electorate. So we're seeing a lot of um, early voting stats in Texas, which is one of those southern states that's, that's got a hefty electoral vote tally attached to it. So you, you, the Republicans count on a big turnout in, in Texas to get those uh, 38 electoral votes. But if turnout increases, um, the big question is who is turning out more? Um, and if it is demographics, like, for example, the 18 to, to 29 demographic, well, that's a demographic that tends to lean more democratic. And so if we're seeing more people voting in some of these southern states that come from um, younger voters, or maybe we see um, the, the sort of white voters without college education, those are the ones that pr- President Trump really relies on. If they are not a big portion of the electorate, if some of them are, are you know, staying home or, or um, skipping the, the presidential vote, then that's going to um, impact the uh, the results as well. So more than necessarily just the aggregate vote total in some of those states, but the composition of the electorate, that is the big one. We can look a bit further north and ask those same questions. We've got a state like Wisconsin that's got among the highest in the country in terms of percentage of the electorate that is um, does not have a college degree. And so that is um, a state that you know, demographically would be favorable for President Trump to win, but how many of those folks are going to come out to vote is the real question. And so we we, get, we end up looking for these differences in turnout um, demographically. Um, you know, what is the actual composition of the electorate on election day? Do we see a huge boost in turnout from from younger voters, which is part of the boost in turnout that propelled Obama to victory, or do we see a lot of those voters staying home, which was really the the key to President Trump's success in? Wisconsin and Michigan and some of those Rust Belt states. Professor Farrell, how much do you read into the long lines that exist for people who are waiting five and six hours and are willing to do so to cast their ballot? Because in any normal year, you would say, whoa, I mean, this this has to be something. If they're just looking to avoid the even longer lines on Election Day or trying to do something that can be socially distanced because of COVID-19, maybe it's a little different. How do you read what we've seen there? That's a that's an interesting one because it can cut um, both ways. It can be indicative of two different things. On, on one hand, it could be a sign, sort of like uh, a new iPhone getting released and the massive lineup at an Apple store. Like, that's <laughs> reflective of enthusiasm. A lot of people want to do the thing, um, and those lines won't be there in a couple of days. And so when we see early voting that, that's lined up for um, you know around the block and, and down the street and so on, that could be just the fact that a lot of people are trying to do something at the same time. It's a coordination problem. Many of those early voting locations, those lines are gone after a couple of days. So it's really an enthusiasm marker more than anything. 
Having said that, there's also states that deliberately try to keep the polling sites to a minimum to impose a time cost on voters to make voting more difficult and to try and discourage people from voting. So it is a mix of both. It's going to depend on on where. But I think one of the things that is striking this election is the sheer number of people voting early. This could be related to um, uh, you know health concerns and trying to you know trying to avoid big lines on election day. But it's you know some of the numbers in some of these states, their their early vote totals are going to surpass their their actual vote totals from 2016. I mean, just the the enthusiasm has been tremendous for early voting. Um, so you, you can read different things into that. It's really hard to project because the, on each state, you know, it, it is different. The electorate's slightly different, but it's hard to it's hard to imagine that the folks, you know, voting for um, an unpopular incumbent would be <laughs> among those that are they're lining up for for hours to vote. So it, it would in some of those states, I would think that the Democrats are going to interpret that as a good sign for them. Interesting. Professor Matt Farrell joining us, professor of political science at Fanshawe College. If we look at the approaches over the last couple of weeks, U.S. President Donald Trump really seems to be catering toward his hardcore followers and some of the things that he is saying. Uh, We've seen Joe Biden bring out former U.S. President Barack Obama, who is doing a lot of speaking, spoke again today. Uh, Let's start with the U.S. President Donald Trump side what have you seen from him not much new um frankly it's uh almost a a a template a replica of the strategy from the 2016 election trying to um you know uh rely on 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 potential scandals and you know looking for incriminating pieces of evidence to try and cast doubt on um people's support for the the challenger in this case Joe Biden. So I think some of the things we're seeing along that line is you know is, is almost a repeat of the same playbook from the the 2016 election. Um, the messaging very much the same. Um, radical left Democrats or it's Bernie Sanders. It's all these people that are uh, going to try and take your health care or, or who or who knows. I mean it's a it's quite a in some some of the rallies quite a fantastical portrayal of of the opposition but it's really meant to i would think it's um mobilize and polarize is his strategy mobilize the base get them really excited um and and again polarizing try and cast a real negative light on the uh on the democratic opponent he he got lucky with that in 2016 largely because of uh an unpopular democratic candidate for one very unpopular um, candidate hillary clinton was and then in just the some of those swing states like uh, Wisconsin and Michigan, there is a huge number of third party ballots and write in ballots that uh, that sort of lowered the threshold for winning in those states. So it was, um, you know, drawing an inside straight kind of thing for for the president. And he's really hoping on the same kind of dynamic this time around. And then if we look at the Democratic side, do you believe that Joe Biden is a more popular candidate this time around? Well, when I when I look at the shifts in popularity, the thing that jumps out at me is the 2018 midterm elections. I feel like the 2018 midterms were sort of a correction from 2016. Anybody that was going to um, that maybe voted for Trump and wasn't happy with that, I feel like they switched in 2018 because we saw about a seven point edge nationally for the uh, the Democratic candidates in the House and uh, and House of Representatives. So I feel like some of that. Uh, in terms of that shift, that popularity shift is already baked in. We've seen that in uh, in 2018, the midterm elections. 
And that's also being reflected in just the, the stability of the race. When you, when you look at some of the polling, it hasn't moved in terms of uh, uh, Biden's apparent lead, national lead over, over the president. So that, I think, is um, reflective of at least a desire to vote Democratic. I don't know if that necessarily means a, a popular Joe Biden, but it means that folks have you know, made up their mind that they're going to support a Democratic slate to the same degree they did in 20, uh, 2018. Um, for the Biden camp, the, the strategy has been pretty consistent. They're trying to maintain a low profile, keep the spotlight on the president. I think they think that's their biggest asset. The more he's talking and doing crazy things, and they're, they, they consider that a win for them. But we've, we've seen his message, right? It's characters on the ballot soul of the nation stuff, unite the country, the same kind of rhetoric hasn't really changed. So keep a low profile and hammer those uh, kind of character points has been the strategy. And it's, I, I mean, really a rock, try not to rock the boat strategy is what I'm getting from the, the Democratic side. The less, uh, the, the less, uh, the fewer headlines they can make, then the better it is for them, I think, is their, their approach. Professor Matt Farrell joining us from Fanshawe College, Professor of Political Science. One last area, Professor Farrell, and that is, okay, we've heard that if we have a win by Donald Trump, then this could happen. If we have a win by Joe Biden, this could happen. When you're mentioning Donald Trump, it's that he may not leave quietly. He might refuse to leave. He sowed some seeds in order to make it seem like, well, you know, this election may not have been all that fair. How do you see that playing out? Do you think that could actually become a factor if Joe Biden is elected president? There's a lot of room for something like that to become a factor. I don't know what that might look like, but from the votes being cast on November 3rd to the new president coming in on January 20th, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in uh, in that time. There's the safe harbor deadline where states must you know, finish counting and certify their votes, then the electoral college meets, and then in early January, the new Congress counts the electoral votes. So there's a lot of different hurdles along the way for where, where, where different things can happen, um, namely disputes about which votes to count. And so there have been law review articles. There's been op-eds written about the possibility that a state like Pennsylvania could send two slates of electors. It could send, you know, the, the governor of Pennsylvania could certify, you know, 20 electoral votes for, for, for Joe Biden. And then the Pennsylvania legislature could send 20 electoral votes for for Donald Trump. And if something like that happens, well, which which one gets counted? And so there's a lot of gray area um, around those types of things potentially happening. And then, mm-hmm. yes, the, the eventual scenario of, um, you know, are, are there two, two inaugurations on, on January 20th? Who knows? There's uh, there's so much room built into that kind of lame duck period that uh, that who knows what could happen. Well, we'll find out. Now, should Donald Trump win, there's suggestion that really if either candidate wins, the people who supported them could protest, could take to the streets. Uh, I don't know, but probability of, of that, would you put that as, as being certainly a, a part of the picture? It could be. Um, in 2016, the, uh, the protests uh, you know, against the, the president were, were almost instant and pretty sustained for a couple of weeks. So if um, in, in, a, in a hotly contested election like this, it could be very close and passions are high on both sides. Yeah, undoubtedly, there's the potential for, um, for protest. In, I mean, it, it, you know, compare that to the 2000 election that was in dispute for, um, for several weeks. And it was, you know, aside from, from the state of Florida, there, 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 there wasn't people rioting in the streets. I mean, there was a, 
um, the, the the Brooks Brothers riot they call it, where where you know people are trying to interrupt the vote counting, but the um, the 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 public kind of just looked on and and uh, you know wanted the thing to be over. And I do think that there is an overwhelming sense of fatigue in the electorate that um, you know a, apart from the highly engaged partisans that are the the, the sort of um, you know the, the more rabid consumers of politics, a lot of people want this over with, and so. If they can find a way out, they will be all over it, I suspect. Love it. Professor Farrell, thank you so much. I don't know whether it's trepidation or, you know, anticipation or whatever it is everybody's feeling, maybe a combination of a lot of stuff, and it's a week away now. We really appreciate the time. My pleasure. I'm going to go grab a stiff drink, I think. Ah, grab one for me, too. <laughs> Professor Matt Farrell, Professor of Political Science at Chuck College. Our list of things to look forward to may seem a little sparse. That trip to wherever it was you wanted to go, yeah, that's not on the list right now. That party that you wanted to have, no, that's not on the list right now. But we can put things on the list. Dinner. Look forward to dinner, yeah, dinner. Definitely looking forward to that. Halloween is something that a lot of people tend to look forward to. We've got a lot of great decorations. If you go through neighborhoods, people seem to be putting up more decorations. That's great. That gets you into the spirit. At least it's something different. You know, we could all sit here and have nothing out front of our houses. Or you could put a half a skeleton on your lawn, and all of a sudden it it seems to be great. Look, there's a half a skeleton on that lawn. There's some tombstones over there. Look, cobwebs. And these things can make us feel happy because, yeah, there's something to look forward to. However, with Halloween this year, there is concern. We've got to do it the right way. You've got to make sure everybody is safe. We've got to figure out how to trick or treat. Well, let's take a temperature of one part of London and how they are prepping for Halloween. Former London City Councilor Sandy Levin is with the Orchard Park Homeowners Association and recently completed a survey in that area about Halloween and joins us now to talk about it. Sandy, how's the day going? Very well, Mike. How about you? Hey, not too bad. This is fascinating what you have done. So let's uh, first of all describe what happened and what sort of survey you put together. What did it aim to do? Well, we had a resident in the neighborhood who was interested in getting, kind of taking the temperature of the neighborhood, seeing what people had in mind for Halloween. So we put that uh, through our neighborhood email list. We've got about 500 people on that list. And it asked three questions. Uh, Basically, do you plan on handing out treats at your door or not? And about 60% of the people said yes, and 40% said no. And we found out what other sorts of activities uh, people had planned through uh, open-ended question. So some people are doing an afternoon costume parade. Uh, Some people are uh, handing out treats at the door with tongs or tennis rackets. Other people (laughs) will have a a table out. And uh, some people just uh, are going to do things indoors with uh, just their family. Okay, so do things indoors with the family. So 60% still plan to hand out treats. That in itself is is fascinating because, remember, it's not a 100% participation rate in most years. So 60% still have the designs to hand out treats and then a number of different ideas. In terms of 
the number of surveys that you received back? Was it something that a lot of people responded to? We got a little over 200 responses, which is a uh, you know, pretty good response, right? Would have been nice to have more, but, uh, you know, it's, we've got a really involved and an interested neighborhood, so it's a, it's a fair response. Uh, and again, about, uh, you know, we didn't get an answer from a lot of people in terms of whether or not they plan to send their kids out trick-or-treating, but it was about a, you know, those who responded to that, which was about 100 it was split pretty much 50-50 in terms of whether or not they're sending their kids out. Hmm. So in terms of, of you know, trick-or-treating, we know that it is going to be different. We know that there is a little bit of apprehension. Did you receive any ideas on handing out trees, you said, with tongs or tennis rackets, but ideas akin to, you know, putting things in plastic cups and, and putting them out on, on the front porch? Did people take the opportunity to say, hey, we came up with something, here it is? Yeah, they had some ideas of, <laughs> Somebody was going to lower treats from a second-story window. <laughs> Somebody uh, has their canoe paddle all set for this exercise. Uh, some people um, are going to be uh, putting out a table and letting the kids uh, pick their own and then replenishing it that way. Uh, somebody has, uh, yeah, here, I like this one, a tray on the table outside the door. The kids can pick one they want without touching the other. They'll replenish with gloves. And they also have a microphone that speaks through a witch's head that will provide instructions to the kids as they come out. So it'll be uh, kind of fun. That is ingenuity and planning. That's fantastic. That's also scary. That, that, would, that would scare me. We've all been to those houses where you've got some kind of decoration and all of a sudden it starts talking. So yeah. Yeah, that'll startle even an adult at Halloween. But remember, this time around, it could actually give you the instructions that could wind up in a nice treat as part of trick-or-treating in 2020. Sandy, anything else catch your eye in the responses? Because this is fantastic that you, you went out and did this, and we appreciate you sharing it with us. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, some people actually are doing uh, prearranged houses for trick-or-treating and doing reverse trick-or-treating. Well, they'll make their own treats and deliver them in the pre-labeled treat bags to those prearranged friends. Uh, some are having... Uh, scavenger hunts in the house using flashlights at home with the kids. Uh, one uh, family is going to march their kids through the neighborhood and their costumes during the day keep them home at night, so leave treats out for the kids to take. Uh, again, people putting chairs out uh, two meters apart and let the kids take the candy from the chairs. Uh, another had this really tremendous idea. They were going to string a laundry line near their front door, and clothespin bags of potato chips and Doritos so that the kids could take them by themselves. That is fantastic. See, as much as we're going to look back at COVID-19 as being a horrible part of all of our histories, and yeah, that's accurate, we're also going to look back and say ingenuity and creativity reigned. And remember when we did this for Halloween. Sandy, you've given amazing ideas through all of this, and everybody in Orchard Park has certainly contributed to that. So thank you for putting together the survey. Thanks for sharing the results with us. We really appreciate it. Appreciate the time and keep safe and happy Halloween. Same to you, Mike.
Thanks that is lot. former London City Councilor Sandy Levin from the Orchard Park Homeowners Association on a survey that he put together. So if you're just joining us, there were three questions on it, and the questions kind of went this way. Do you plan to hand out treats at Halloween? And 60% of respondents, and there were over 200 respondents out of 500 surveys, plan to hand out treats. And then one of the other questions was, will you send your kids out? And not everybody has kids to send out. So there were over 100 responses for this, and it was split about 50-50. 50-50 as to whether or not you're sending your kids out for Halloween. But the idea of dropping treats down from a second floor window, I like that, or the witches had instructions on how to take treats from the bowl, or you socially distance treats on a table, and that way the kids are not digging into a bowl. So you put out a table, the treats are socially distanced, they pick what it is that they want, not really touching anything else, because we are hearing more that, you know, Spreading COVID-19 is not something that typically is going to be done by manhandling Halloween treats. Does it make the risk zero? No. Does it make the risk high? No, not that either. So you've got to come up with a way of doing things. I still like the witch's hat idea. Though, do you not remember that even, you know, sure as a kid, but when you're taking your own kids around, there's always that house. We used to have a neighbor, and the neighbor would dress up. And it would be in, you know, just a pair of jeans and maybe a hat and an old sweater. And he would paint his face up kind of zombie style. And he would lean up against the garage. And he would stay perfectly still. And he would look like a prop. And it wouldn't even happen every single time. I mean, if little kids were coming up to the door, he's not budging. He's just a prop. But if you got somebody who was maybe 12 years old and just on the cusp of, yeah, I don't know whether you should be trick-or-treating anymore, and they were walking up, all of a sudden he would spring to life and scare them unbelievably. So that's one of the the best things you can do at Halloween. You're not going to do it to the five-year-olds. But if somebody comes up and they're about 12, sure, spring into action. So I don't know that we're going to have much of that. I don't think this is the Halloween, but this is more the Halloween for the five-year-olds and the six-year-olds. What do you do with the people who come late? Are they still going to come late? Are the 13, 14, and 15-year-olds going to show up? You know, the ones that knock on the door, you know, late at night. It's 9 o'clock. You've turned off your lights, 10 o'clock. And you still get that knock on the door, and you open it, and there's just two guys standing there. Hey, what do you guys need? Well, trick or treat. Uh, Great. What are you dressed as? We're guys. But my wife always handles that perfectly. She says you have to give those two people whatever it is that you you have left or make sure you've got a good treat. Have a couple cans of pop for them. Be friends with them. Because they're the ones who, if you're not nice to them, will come back and egg your house. So it's, it's a good strategy. I don't know if they will be around this year. I would doubt it. This is going to be the trick-or-treat year for the little kids. But thanks to Sandy Levin for sending out that survey and sharing the results. You want to go where people go, where people are all the same. 
You want to go where everybody knows your name. Very wise words from a sitcom in the 80s. It doesn't really apply to the moon just yet, but you never know. I mean, people would go to Cheers, and they would know that everybody would know their name, and it was a nice, comfortable place. We need a place like that on Earth right now. Not too many places we can go. We're told to stay away from most places or go there and be very quick about it. You may be getting sick of living on Earth. So we've looked at Mars before with the help of Dr. Gordon Nazinski. But now we get a chance to look at, well, the moon is technically closer than Mars. Could we live on the moon? Well, not without a space suit. I wouldn't want to try that. I don't know how long you'd last in space. Let's welcome Dr. Azinski to London Live. Dr. Azinski, how are things? I'm very good, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me back on the show. Do you die instantly in space? I don't, I don't even know if this is, is something that, uh, that comes off the top of your head, but if I was to just appear on the moon and be there in what I'm wearing right now, which definitely isn't a space suit, I don't even have socks on, uh, definitely is not a space suit, would I die instantly? I guess it depends which kind of sci-fi movie and things you watch. Um, <laughs> I don't, and I don't know if anyone's actually tested it, but within seconds, absolutely. Yeah. So not long, yeah. Not no. not at least uh, you wouldn't have enough time to enjoy the change in gravity or enjoy the view of the Earth or anything like that, I suppose. But there is talk about a lunar base on the moon. There has been for a while, and very recently we had some information come out that could make it even more viable. What was that information? Yeah, so yesterday was an exciting day for the moon because there was actually two papers published and uh, NASA did a kind of big press conference on one of them, which is basically providing further evidence that there's water on the moon and not just kind of close to the poles in these big craters as we used to think. So, you know, anytime we find more evidence for water on the moon really opens the door for future exploration, you know, both robotically and humans. Wow, okay. So there have been theories, right, about water on the moon. Would would we call them theories? Uh, Some of it's theory for sure, but we do have scientific evidence from from previous missions for water on the moon. Um, Still not, you know, very old. If you go back to Apollo and, you know, a couple of decades ago, we used to think the moon was completely dry and dead and, you know, completely inhospitable. Um, but over the last couple of decades, there's been, you know, various uh, bits of evidence, bits of the jigsaw puzzle, you could say, coming together. Um, one of the, the main evidence is that near the poles of the moon, there are these big impact craters. So big holes in the ground that are permanently shadowed. And so because they're so cold over literally billions of years, you know, individual molecules of water can get trapped in there. And so these have been some of the targets for you know, where we might build a lunar base, like you mentioned earlier. Dr. Gornosinski joining us from Western University and the Department of Earth Sciences as we look at yesterday and a little bit more information about water on the moon, making it perhaps viable for a lunar base. Dr. Ozinski, didn't we go to the moon because we could? I think you could maybe say that, of course, when we went to the moon the first time, it was the Cold War and there was a lot of a lot of different incentives for going to the moon. Um, but we're going back this time, I think, as an international community, uh, lots of science questions to answer. And uh, yeah, yesterday's discovery is one of the, the big reason NASA kind of focused on it was that 
It was one of the first clear discoveries of water in a sunlit region of the moon in this uh, meteorite impact crater called Clavius. And so, again, it's just adding to this story that we, we don't fully understand the moon, even our closest neighbor and probably the solar system object we know most about. And so there's still, you know, still lots of discoveries happening. And uh, it further provides, you know, to me, motivation to go back and uh, to explore the surface further. Now, setting up a lunar base, in the movies, they make it pretty easy to set up bases all over the place. You just fly some stuff up there, you plunk it down, you get some people, and next thing you know, they're growing plants. But in real life, how big a venture would this be? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the movies have a habit of making thing, everything look easy, I think, for sure. Um, I mean, it would be like nothing else we've ever done as a species before. Um you know, we've had practice with the International Space Station, which, you know, is a, if you ever get uh, your timing right and kind of see it uh, flying overhead at night, you know, it's a huge object, solar panels the size of football fields and things. And, you know, that took a couple of decades to build many, many missions uh, to put it all together, you know, bit by bit. Um, a lunar base has, you know, some pros and cons. You're on a surface. We can use some of the materials on the moon to help build the lunar base to even create the buildings and shielders from the radiation. Um, it's a long way away, but it isn't. Like you said, you know, Mars is, humans to Mars is a six kind of month, one way, at least six months just to get there. Um, the nice thing about the moon, you know, as they showed you in Apollo, it's, it's a, a relatively quick three-day trip, you know. It's a, bit of a, a quick, fast drive across Canada, and, uh, and you'll be there on the surface of the moon. So there's, there's definitely some uh, things that make the moon a bit easier to think about building a base. You mentioned radiation. It's one thing to go up and hang out for a couple of days, as some of the lunar missions have done, and work some experiments. If you were living there for any long period of time, the radiation aspect of it, because there isn't an atmosphere to protect us on the moon, how big a role does that play in maybe making things safe, if they can even be called that? Uh, yeah, no, radiation is definitely probably the single biggest challenge you know, facing humans in terms of establishing a long-term presence on the moon. Um, you know, the space station benefits by not really being in the atmosphere, but the magnetosphere of the Earth, which protects us um, from a lot of the incoming radiation. Um, so, yeah, even that's why uh, any, you know, any long-term base on the moon or even, you know, just a what we call a sortie mission being there for two a few weeks, um, there's the constant background radiation, which we can build some shields against, but then there's the really, you know, solar flare activity, which releases really high energy uh, particles. And so we basically go build shields. And we can do that with water is actually a good shield, you know, lead, but that's too heavy. But that's why there's a lot of interest in actually building bases uh, either underground and things like lava tubes or, you know, piling the lunar soil or the lunar regolith on top of a structure to use the lunar materials as a shield. So we've got ideas, definitely going to be a challenge and it's not going to be easy for sure. Dr. Gordazinski joining us from the Department of Earth Sciences at Western University. Dr. Oz, it's probably a little too early for any kind of timeline, but what do you look for next in this story? 
Well, you know, this, these discoveries are happening in parallel to really the development of the infrastructure, the rockets, the spacecraft, uh, the landing systems to get humans back to the moon. Um, there was in the news just in the last couple of weeks, um, you know, the Canadian Space Agency, along with several other agencies around the world, have signed something called the Artemis Accords, which is, you know, saying that we're going to work together as a group of countries and going back to the moon. Uh, different countries are figuring out what they're going to contribute. And uh, here in Canada, I don't think it's a surprise that robotics, you know, essentially a Canada Arm 3 will be one of our big kind of major contributions to getting back to the moon. And, you know, if a lot of it's driven by, you know, the world we're living in with COVID and uh, politics south of the border, but, you know, 2023, 2024, we might see that first return mission. That will be a short one. And then, uh, you know, once we get that under our belt, we'll hopefully see regular short missions and then build up to some of these longer missions. And then, you know, finally, maybe a decade, uh, a kind of more full-time lunar outpost or research station. And really, we could see it that quickly. The tech, I think the know-how is there. You know, it's, uh, it really comes down to... Um, I think motivation will politics and uh, and of course funding of course all right well we'll see where the funding comes from and it is uh, encouraging to know how much private enterprise has gone into space technology so do you do you look at that as being something that that may really help it that the money doesn't have to come from governments and countries that sometimes it can just come from rich billionaires and mm, maybe even if jeff bezos gets there a trillionaire Absolutely, yeah. You know, this cost kind of sharing idea where, you know, NASA is now saying, you know, we want to purchase uh, rocket launches to the space station. And, you know, they put out a competition. Uh, they receive bids from companies. And, of course, SpaceX is now doing that. Um, and I think eventually that will be the same for the moon. You know, a lot of companies are putting in their own resources. And, of course, some owned by billionaires putting in their own you know, personal resources into developing these technologies, which does reduce the costs for the taxpayer. And so and it also increases, it drives down costs and uh, increases competition, which is a great thing. Well, Dr. Oz, thank you so much for giving us the details and giving us something to certainly look forward to. We, we need to find those things these days. Really appreciate it. Please keep safe. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Mike. Anytime. That's Dr. Gordazinski from the Department of Earth Sciences at Western University. So even if we're not on on the trek, it's something to look forward to. The idea that, hey, we're going to go and do this, and what will a lunar base allow us to do? Well, understand more things. That's kind of the key. And if you can get private enterprise to pay for it, or at least share in the cost of it, greatly reduces the cost. And from there, well, who knows what we come up with. If you're tired of Earth... Wait till you see that sign posted somewhere. Call 1-800-THIS-NUMBER and book your flight today. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.